Well, here we are this morning, and uh, the Chiefs have lost, the Packers have lost, and no one's relative won the lottery. At least I haven't heard that yet. And so we're gathered together here, and we're saying, well, it's a new day. Uh, what is God going to uh, share with us and teach us today? So let's ask God to prepare our hearts, even by asking him, inviting him, as we pray together. Would you pray with me? Oh, God, you are so good. You are a good, good father. And uh, I, we, I thank you that we can be gathered together in this room this morning with hearts and minds and lives filled with anticipation that we're here for you to teach us something and to go with us as we leave this room today. And so, Lord, prepare us for that right now. Open our hearts and open our minds. And, Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would individually and uniquely speak to each one of us through your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, I saw The Martian this week. Long, long film, but just a fascinating story, actually, of Matt Damon. He was stuck on Mars. Did you know Matt Damon was stuck on Mars? Yeah, he was up there, and uh, he wasn't going to survive because the food supply was about to run out. I don't know how many days it was. He counted it out. Everybody else had left, and so there was more food than he had planned on, but it wasn't enough to wait the four years for the, uh, the uh, NASA to get back to him and, and save him. So you know what he did? I'm not, tell, I'm not um, uh, uh, ruining anything for you because, I mean, I, I hear it joked about all the time now. He found potatoes. And he took the potatoes and soil from Mars and a bunch of other things you'll have to see the movie for. And he cut the potatoes up, his food, and he planted the potatoes in the soil and he grew potatoes. And he actually was able to grow enough food for him to survive. What a daring thing to do. You've got it in your hand. If I keep it, I'm sure that I can eat it. If I take the risk of planting potatoes in Martian soil, I don't know what's going to happen. But he took the thing he had in his hand and he gave it away to the soil. And he reaped a harvest that was more abundant than what he had. You know where we're going with this. This is what God has said to us as his children, to take the, thing we, the things we have in our hands, as nice as it is to hang on to them because there's a sense of certainty, at least of some kind with it, but to give them away, to offer them over to God in order that we might reap a harvest of abundance. And so we've been talking about this for the last couple of weeks, and we're going to continue with it this morning and then talk about it again one more week next week, and I just I'll encourage you to come back next week. I have a friend coming from uh, California on his way to the Covenant Midwinter meetings and has offered to stop in Kansas City on the way. And so Kevin will be with us on Sunday morning, and you will enjoy Kevin. But we're talking about this whole theme of what it means to live the abundant life. It's what Jesus said. I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. And the meaning of that, as we've looked at it over the last couple of weeks, is more than material possession. Uh, last week we talked about generosity with material possessions and what it generates. Actually, it generates a, a, an abundance of a different magnitude. 
This is what God does when we take our material possessions and we give them over to him. We discover that he does really well with them. And what abundance I reap is a greater sense of confidence that my life will be taken care of in God. A deeper sense of worship, a more profound sense of hope, calm, significance in relationship with those with whom I share the abundance of all sorts that God provides for us. So we're going to talk about an abundance that God wants to provide for us this morning as we hold on to and realize the thing that we hold in our hand that God actually wants us to give to him. What is that that God actually wants to give to him? We have looked at New Testament texts for the last couple of weeks. I want to look at this story in the Old Testament this morning. The story of Esther. story about a person who didn't have really much to hold in her hand at all, but she did have her life, and Mordecai invited her to consider what she would do, not with material possessions, but actually with her life. What can we learn from this story? I want to suggest a couple of principles and lead us into application. The first is this. A life of abundance doesn't require a setting of hope. A life of abundance doesn't require a setting of hope. Present circumstances are poor predictors of possible abundance. And that's what we typically do, don't we? We look around and we can kind of calculate whether there's going to be abundance in my life based on what I see in my life, what it is around me. Esther looked around her and she saw a desert of despair. And yet we get to the end of this story and we discover that God is there and God provides abundantly. How does it happen? Well, in this story, there's actually no mention of God. I mean, God's in the Bible but there's no mention of God in the book of Esther. Isn't it interesting? In the, whole, in the whole Bible, there is one book that has no reference, no specific reference to God, and it's this story. Page to it. You won't see him mentioned. You talk about a desert. It doesn't even seem that God is present in the mess, the harshness of this place. It's a, it's a hopeless place. It's a place where people's lives were used and lives were destroyed. We start in, in, in Esther chapter 1 and we hear about this beautiful Queen Vashti. And she was absolutely a beautiful queen. And, and her, her husband, the king, decided to hold a party, invited all of the noblemen all of the princes, all of the elite from all of the provinces that were present in that place. And he decided to hold a party. It says that wine was served in goblets of gold, each one different from another. The royal wine was abundant, it said, in keeping with the king's liberality. Well, he certainly was. By the king's command, each guest was allowed to drink with no restrictions, for the king instructed all the wine stewards to serve each man whatever he wished. By time day seven comes around, the king is in high spirits. I believe that. <laughs> so here he is. The king is in high spirits, and he decides that he wants to show off his beautiful bride. And she was beautiful. 
And he calls for her, and he instructs her to come wearing her crown so that her beauty might be shown off. Now understand what's going on here. She's instructed to wear her crown. Period. Did you get it? That's what this man is doing to this woman. To make her an object of absolute ridicule and humiliation so he can say, look what I've got. Come on. I want to see the parade in front of people you don't know. I want to see a parade. That's what this king was like. He was a cruel leader and considered her to be subhuman to parade her body for leering strangers. And we see a king who acts in a subhuman way as well. Things go very bad for Queen Vashti, and she is vanquished, and her life is over. What happens next is this young woman, Jewish woman, Esther, gets pulled in because she, too, is very beautiful. And she becomes queen. You know, when I read this story as a kid, it seemed like, wow, it's a Cinderella story. This isn't a Cinderella story. This is a person who's brought in to a harsh world filled with people who treat each other and use power in ways that are tragic. We see a young woman caught in the middle of it because of who she was, unique in her beauty. And then by the time we get to chapters 3 and 4, we see her uncle, Mordecai, a principled man who could not imagine the intentions of the person before whom he would not bow. He had no clue. This person entrusted with authority would be that filled with rage, and that willing to destroy a life. Mordecai is about to have his body hung from a post and his people experience genocide. And yet in the middle of this story, of this harsh place, a desert wasteland really in regards to any values that anyone would consider noble or good or right, we see oddly connected and uniquely timed, curiously timed events that seem inconsequential at first. And you say, Mark, wait a minute, this is our story about abundance? This is it? A life of abundance doesn't require a setting of hope. A life of abundance doesn't require a setting of hope. In fact, when we get to the end of this story, there is this exhortation for the Jewish people never to forget it. In fact, if you have Jewish friends, this is still a festival that is celebrated by Jewish communities. It's the festival of Purim. It's a 
festival of a wonderful meal and giving of gifts to friends and to the poor. Joy that is complete and enjoyed and shared with others. And the biblical instruction here is in Esther chapter 9 that instructs them to observe the days as days of feasting and joy and giving of presents to all people. That's abundance. You see, somehow in the midst of this desert, abundance comes. In the midst of this tragedy, in the midst of this harsh place, abundance comes. Experiencing abundance doesn't require a setting that is conducive to it. I remember when I had an opportunity to be able to travel to some of the poorest regions of Africa. Uh, we were visiting Mozambique and Malawi, absolutely dire places, and have conversations with people in their communities characterized by laughter and joy and contentment and love and sharing with each other. I looked through that, at that scene through Western, uh, well-resourced eyes and saw things that I just couldn't imagine could equate one with the other. But you see, it's not necessary to have a bunch of stuff and to experience a life of abundance. It's not necessary. Here's my question for you. Does the setting of your life look desert-like right now? Does it look that way? There's no way you can calculate any connection between where you are and what's around you in a life that is filled with abundance. A life that is filled with joy and worship and community and peace and contentment. You say, Mark, I'm looking around and I can't see any path towards that. And in this story, we discover we don't even have to see a path in order to get to that. It's so easy for us to be tempted to, and I'm sure Esther was, pull back, manage the little in your life you can control, take care of yourself, keep your head down, and just plow forward. And Mordecai steps into Esther's life and he says, no, here's the pathway that I want you to be on. I want you to give your life away. That's what I want. Offer your life to the Lord. We come to the second thing that God that is true in this text. It is a choice to give everything is an opportunity for everything to be changed. How does abundance occur? Because someone decides to give their life away. That's what happens in this story. Esther says, if I perish, I perish. There happened to be in this story a generous person. A person who said, I'm going to give my life away. And that was the critical juncture that led towards a total transformation of circumstances that were filled with cruelty to a life that was filled with abundance. Mordecai challenged her not just to consider her own life, but the lives of others, and to put her life on the line as a result. Now we're seeing God in this story. <laughs> because that's God. More specifically, that's Jesus. That's what, that's what Jesus decided to do. Jesus decided to consider not his own life, but the lives of others, and to put his life 
on the line as a result, more than to put it on the line, to give it away. We go to the New Testament and we read in Philippians chapter 2 these words about Jesus Christ, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant and being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even obedient to death, death on a cross. There is Jesus in this story. The one who actually did that, who didn't merely offer it, but gave his life so that others might live, so that I might live. When wickedness is confronted by life-surrendering generosity, the harvest is abundance. Now we understand what Jesus meant when he said in John 10.10, I have come that you might have life and have it to the full. I have come to give my life so that you might have life and have it in superabundance. This is a story of dramatic reversal. Frankly, it's a story of a person who had no choices in her life but this one. Everything else in Esther's life was beyond her control, but she had this one choice. Will you give your life away? And so what is the application for us? I think it's pretty easy to go to the, you know, the story of the hen and the pig. You know, they had this great farmer master who always took care of them. And the hen goes over to the pig and says, you know, we got a great master, don't we? And the pig says, yeah, yeah, he's really great. Every morning provides everything we need. He's cared for us, kept us warm, all that. And the hen says, yeah, that's right. I think we ought to fix some breakfast. And the hen says, I'll provide the egg, you provide the ham. <laughs> you know, and there is a sense that the pig notes that there's a different kind of generosity required on his part than on the hen's. And you know, we can look at this story and we say, yeah, that's what, is, that, is that what it is? Is God actually calling me to be like the pig in order to benefit the master? Well, we can have that sense. I mean, we hear these things. Jesus says, unless a kernel, of wheat fall, a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and die, it cannot bear any fruits. So there's a sense of God's calling me to call, fall to the ground and die. I hope just that that's a metaphor. But is it possible that he might really want it, that he might really want to take my life? And so we may walk out of here resolving, you know, if ever I'm in a situation just like Queen Esther was in, I'll, I'll, I'll do it. But I'm not. Whew. It's a good thing. I mean, if it ever happens, I'm, I'll, I'll be there. But uh, I, I'm glad I'm not. I'll say, if I perish, I perish. Here's the, here's the thing that we miss in this story. We're so struck by Esther's resolve to say, if I perish, I perish, that we easily miss the truth of the story. Does Esther die? That's an easy question. Does she die? No, she doesn't. Does God want Esther to die? No. You see, God doesn't want her death. He wants her life. That was his plan all along. God doesn't want your death, friends. 
God wants our life. What's the difference? Look at the text. Mordecai says to Esther, give the life you now live for his purposes. How do you know, he asks, that you're not here now, right now, in this room this morning, because God has worked in your life. He wants you to give you, Esther, every part of you. He wants you to give that God-given beauty, the story of your life, the relationships of your life, follow all of that up, and here you are, here right now. Are you willing to give that to God. What is it that your life consists of? It's ironic, isn't it? Even it refers to it as royal generosity. What an interesting word. I am a child of the king. I am royalty. And now I'm invited to give my life my story, my circumstances, my being. It's why you in particular, Mordecai says, are here right now because he wants to use who you are right here, right now. You see, it's easy when it's a theoretical thing. If God someday wants my life, he can have it. But what about my life? Can I give him what I have right now? And if I did, what does that even look like? We might be willing to give what might be. How about it if we give what already is? We might be willing to give what we might be, but how about if we give what already is? What if God wants to, uh, you to offer your past and your present? So let me just unpack that a little bit. And you can think about what it means for you to give your life to the one who wants to change the world around you because you're willing to give you. I want to give you an example of someone from a congregation who's giving his life. Just right out there and saying, this is my life. And I'm going to open it up and tell the story. I want you to watch and listen to what Greg has to say. If I wouldn't have gotten help back when I did, um, well, I, I wouldn't be married today. I wouldn't have a second child. Um, it's sad to think about what would happen. But, um, yeah, um, Satan can be, obviously, that he's deceptive, and that's the whole idea behind um, this false uh, needs being met or needs being met in a false way. So uh, to be able to know that and know that there are things that he is doing to the core of us and in the truth of who we are and, and uh, just the way that God sees us and, and, and loves us, that's his, his way of, of keeping us, you know, from real freedom and real truth. Being in groups and sharing with guys and, and um, doing it consistently is you're allowing yourself to be known. 
Um, and it doesn't happen one time coming. It doesn't happen a month coming. It takes time to do that. It takes circumstances in life, of failures in life, and joys in life, and all of those that you share with people in your group, and you become known to them. And then you have concern and sorrow and what have you for guys that you know are struggling, but yet you know that God is still going to redeem. He's going to bring about his goodness in our lives. One of the things I'm starting to understand more too is that there is not anyone on the face of the earth that does not have an addiction. We all have them and they hurt other people in the way that it first hurts us. It takes away from us so that we don't become something for what God has made us and that we can be towards other people. So the addictions that all of us have in one way or another do that. And so we all need to be open about these and be able to share them. Maybe not in a 12-step group, but just to be open about them. There's an example of someone who's willing to share their life, isn't it? Here's my life. How do I know that I'm not in this place at this time for such a time as this? So that others can know not how great I am. Greg's not telling you how great he is. But how good God is. And how is it ever noticed if we're not willing to say with the life that we've been given, it's not mine, it doesn't belong to me, I possess it. And whatever it is that God can use about it to give him glory, I am offering it. Greg's offering his life. It's right out there in the open. Walking into a room of others that are candid with what's real in their life and offering it to others in order that others might see the glory of the gospel in the midst of a life that needs the power of the Lord. Do you see how it happens? We actually share our lives. We tell the stories so that people might see not us, but the treasure that's in us. There are three traits, actually, of a person who gives their life away. And the first is this. It's proximity, to be close to someone. I think it's interesting that when Paul went to the church at Corinth, he said to them, we shared our very lives with one another. You knew my life. I wasn't just up there in front of you, standing behind some pulpit, telling you what Jesus said. I shared my life with you. To be generous, to be in proximity, life on life with one another. We see the power of this, that God actually designed the church to be the body of Christ, to be a family, and to be able to be involved with one another. There are commands for one another to encourage one another, to support one another, to, to stand for one another, to love one another, because God wants us to be in proximity with each other. God actually wants us to share our lives with each other, to be in circles with one another. Sometimes we talk about this when we're thinking about what does it mean for us to be a church and say it's so easy for us to be in rows 
but we really get to the point where we're growing when we turn from rows into circles and we start to share stories with one another. You saw this before, but I want to show you just a, quick, a clip of um, what happens in small group ministries as a result of people being willing to share their lives with one another. Listen to this. We started small group when we were still engaged, so to kind of build that foundation of, of already um, studying the Bible and studying with a group of people before we even entered into marriage together. And so just to have that community and that support that we could always go to, it was a community to be together and support each other. I mean, it almost makes me feel in a cry because it just feels like a glorious, beautiful mentorship of us moms and, and, and dads, um, you know, who are struggling through some preteen issues or just the busyness of, of kids. And then getting reminded by these older, wiser people who have walked our shoes and are now without their, you know, their kids are taking flight and leaving. And just, it's been great in the wisdom they provided, but also in the reminder of how precious our time with our kids is, even when it's hard or chaotic. You see, there's a value of just being connected with one another, so you know each other. In fact, What's happening in our children's ministry right now? Right now, there are parents, uh, grown-ups, older folks that are sitting on the floor right now with our first graders, second graders, third graders, and they're actually sitting on the floor with them. Uh, I, I don't remember when I ever had a Sunday school teacher that actually got down on the floor and looked me in the eye and connected with me like that. But that's really what God wants for us, is to be involved in one another's lives. And the children in our church need to know what God's Word says, but they actually need more than that. They need to know that it's made a difference in my life. They need more than the Scripture. They need the story of when it impacted me. It's true in small groups. We don't just study the Bible together. We actually share stories of when it impacted and how it impacted our life. You know, the kids, this Sunday, it's on self-control. And those of you that are parents, you'll walk home with one of these. And, and uh, they're studying this morning, Proverbs 21, 23. Those who guard their mouths and tongues keep themselves from calamity. And you know what they need more than knowing what Proverbs 21, 23 says? They need to know that there are grown-ups for whom it's true. Grown-ups are willing to share the mistakes they made, the times they blew it, when they said something and it messed up their lives, and that they experienced God's forgiveness and God's strength in working things out. So, parents, those of you whose kids are doing this, they not only need to know that that's what that verse says, tell them a story of a time when you opened your mouth and things came out that you regretted and how God's reminded you and brought that to your attention. And that's when the Word of God becomes real, when we decide to share our lives with each other. It's pretty hard, isn't it? Because those can be embarrassing stories or difficult stories. And I'm not saying that we tell them on Facebook. 
But God calls us to share them with each other. The three characteristics are the characteristics of proximity to actually be connected in people's lives where those stories can be told. Second characteristic is humility, to take up your cross and follow me, Jesus says. It requires humility. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the all-surpassing power is from God and not from us. You know what I like to do? I like to just paint up the jar of clay rather than showing the treasure that's inside. And God says, stop painting the jar. Let everybody know how frail and weak it is and that Christ is still there in your life in spite of it and strengthening it. Tell those stories. Proximity, humility, and certainty. I can tell that story because I'm sure I've been forgiven. I'm sure of it. I'm sure that now is a story of God's redemptive work. And I can tell it because God has redeemed that. And the church and my community can benefit from it. The rabbis actually have two categories of miracles. One, blatant manifestations of supernatural power. The second is God working through natural events. One bends the natural laws of the universe. The other surrenders human nature. So here's the questions I want to ask you to consider as you leave here this morning. Will I trust Christ with my life? Will I live connected with other people? And will I offer my story to those around me? As you think about it this week, ask yourself this question, what's the story I have to tell? And be willing to tell it to somebody that God might put in your life that needs to hear it in such a time as that. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are God, that is God that redeems our lives and actually uses the stories of our lives in ways that can strengthen and encourage others. Lord, I pray for humility for us. I pray for connection for us. And I pray for worship that comes when we can say again and again, we could trust you with our story and you change the lives around us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.